thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Well, welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and I'm delighted to have you with me because today is going to be a podcast I think you're going to want to share with some friends because if your experience growing up in the church is anything like mine was, and I grew up in what we would call today conservative, Bible-believing, evangelical churches, then you're going to have your head explode over a few things, just as my head has been exploding for the last several weeks and last couple of years. I I can't believe how little I actually know, or knew, I guess you could say, of the history of Christianity that I profess to be a part of, that great cloud of witnesses. But if you'll recall from a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the 1850s and the early 1900s, it's not surprising I wouldn't know any of that history because we thought we could just start the world all over again. Just like the atheists and the French in the French Revolution thought they could start the world all over again, right? I think that was what Thomas Paine said, or I don't remember who it was, but you know, we can start the world anew. And that's what we thought we could do with the church. We'll just take the scripture, we'll apply Baconian hermeneutics to it, and every person from plowboy to scholar can come up with the same answers and the same understanding of the scripture, and we don't need to have any of these creeds and all this theological training. I mean, it's the the ultimate of arrogance and the disconnection of ourselves from history, but it is what it is. It's what most of us grew up with in our churches or if we didn't grow up in the churches, what you hear most of the time today in our churches. Now, it's subtle, and you wouldn't really realize that's going on. But my friends, by the end of the day, you'll realize what's going on. Now, I want to go back to last week, and I know last week I ended the podcast with saying Orthodox Christianity had generally had an optimistic view of the progress of Christianity for, say, the last... Uh, you know, thousand years or so. Um, You remember talking about Kuiper saying, we no longer make any progress in the Protestant community. We just wander around aimlessly, hither and thither, not knowing what we're really here for or supposed to do. And, and, And that's been replaced with generally pessimism, right? And, and I do want to talk about that. And I'll get to that next week, Lord willing. But what you're going to hear next week is how the modern evangelical church has essentially replaced optimism with a doctrinal view that throughout history until really the late 1800s and early 1900s would have been condemned as heresy. So make sure that you listen next week. But I want to go back to the concept of apologetics that I mentioned last week and how as Christians our apologetic has not allowed us to make any progress. You'll recall I used the quote from Kuiper. He said, apologetics has essentially been um, cowardly and uh, we've, we've used it as a ravelin to in essence uh, throw off the discussion of harder, deeper issues and theological questions and dogma, I guess you could say. And, and he said that it's not advanced Protestantism one single step. And I got to thinking, you know, if we don't understand 
what is meant by apologetic and what a biblical apologetic is versus a non-biblical, non-Christian apologetic used by Christians today, then our, our work going forward will be futile, right? I mean, if, if you don't know how to defend your faith, then your, your faith will be futile, okay? Now, all Christians are told to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within you. We, we need to defend the faith. But the word faith itself and what we're supposed to defend has gotten lost over the last 150 to say 200 years. It began going away and, and, and actually it's largely gone away in our modern days, say beginning the late 1800s and uh, mid 1900s for sure. And that may sound crazy to say, what do you mean? We're always defending the faith. We're always, we have classes on apologetics and worldview and all that stuff, but, but ooh, boy, here's where my head got exploded, and I hope this doesn't explode your head, that maybe I'm the only person in the world who didn't know this, but, but based on how I see apologetics being offered in the world today, I, th I think today's gonna be a challenge. It's gonna mess up some of what we've been taught to think because it's sure messed up what I was taught to think. Now, I want to put this in the context of a real live thing, not just be some sort of abstraction. And you remember a couple of weeks ago, there was a news report about some Tampa Bay Ray baseball players who decided not to wear pride patches, I guess you could say, or take the, the team's emblems that were painted in pride colors and, and said, nah, we're, we don't want to play the game wearing those colors, okay? And uh, they weren't gonna celebrate Pride Month, which is of course what we're in the middle of right, right now. And, and look, I wanna commend those men for saying, no, I'm not gonna go along with the crowd. I'm not gonna celebrate this. So, so kudos to them for going against the cultural tide. But I wanna look at what they said because how they approached what they said about not participating goes to this whole matter of apologetics. And now I'm gonna be honest, friends, I would have probably thought nothing about it two years ago, certainly three or four or five years ago, okay? So here's what they said. A lot of it comes down to faith. This is one of the players who was the spokesman, and he was quoted as saying this. A lot of it comes down to faith, to like a faith-based decision. Now, he then goes on and says, we don't want to look down on anybody. It's not that we're trying to think differently about anybody. It's just that maybe we don't want to encourage it, referring to this lifestyle, he says, if we believe in Jesus, who's encouraged us to live a lifestyle that would abstain from that behavior, just like Jesus encourages me as a heterosexual male to abstain from sex outside the confines of marriage. It's no different. It's not judgmental. It's not looking down. It's just what we believe, the lifestyle he's encouraged us to live for our good, not to withhold, but again, we love these men and women. We care about them, so on and so forth. Now, a very gracious statement, a kind statement, but it is, it is not an apologetic statement, and by that I don't mean asking for an apology. I mean defending the faith but yet it's consistent with, with how we would generally been, be taught to, to talk about these issues. 
And if you say, well, what's wrong with it? Let me repeat it again just carefully. It comes down to faith. Well, we're people of faith, right? We're going to talk about the meaning of faith today. That what we often call faith today is not faith in a biblical sense, which is why we have so many people struggling with professing a faith they can't live up to and or professing a faith that they finally just abandon. And that's happened, right? A lot of Christian guys, hey, I can't live this out. I don't think it's true anymore. I've abandoned it. And I get it. I get it. And you'll understand why by the time we're finished today. But here's, here's the reality. Jesus just doesn't encourage us to live a lifestyle versus a different lifestyle. God demands that we be holy. If God is not authoritative and his word is not authoritative and his statements are not commands, then I don't know what we're worshiping, but it's not God. It's something we've created up in our own head. It's the psychological guru who's trying to help us, but he's not God. Now, indeed, he has made us a certain way, designed us a certain way. There's a givenness to our creation and a way it's supposed to operate but we're not holy if we don't operate that way. It's not a suggestion this would be good. It is good. But we can't be guilty before God if all he makes are suggestions and we decide not to keep them. There is no place for hell when we're given suggestions, but we just chose not to keep them. That leads to universalism. Everybody goes to heaven because they were, after all, only suggestions. Now, I want to come back to this word faith because it's very important and it has taken on a meaning in the church today that's grounded more in humanistic philosophy than in the Bible. And yes, you heard me correctly. Now to get to this, I'm, I'm going to use a word that I did not know until, oh, maybe six months ago, but really hadn't begun to investigate in terms of what it meant or its importance to my Christian walk and I think it is pronounced prolegomena, prolegomena, P-R-O-L-E-G-O-M-E-N-A. It's a Greek word that essentially means to say first or to speak first, okay? So in, in systematic theology, where we're trying to put the whole of our theology and understanding of God into a systematized order where all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed, they would be, in essence, the very first aspects of our theology. The things we would, we would need to say first in our development of a systematic theology. To use a, a word that Jerry Nadler used derisively in the hearings with uh, Justice Barrett, where he said, you know, the dogma speaks loud in you, lady. Um, it would be the things upon which we base our dogma, our doctrinal beliefs about God, the nature of the world, the nature of salvation, the direction of the world. It would deal with cosmology, soteriology, and eschatology. They would be the first things that lead to the doctrines in those areas. I had never heard of that word, nor had I ever had anybody explain to me what the Christian prolegomena was or how it has changed over the last 100 to 200 years. And it's changed because of all those philosophers I mentioned last week, because of Descartes, 
and his separating the mind and the body and the dualism inherent in that. And then Kant separating the natural and the supernatural and saying we really can't know anything about the supernatural world because we can't assume the way we operate in the natural world according to reason and according to the law of non-contradiction and reliability of sense perceptions and those kinds of things. We can't assume that those work in the supernatural realm. And, and so essentially we wound up with feelings, subjective theology, so to speak. The supernatural was was a sense of dependence on God. Remember Schleimacher I mentioned, okay? So with that as sort of introduction, I'm going to read from uh, an article from a, a professor who teaches prolegomena in seminary. And if you'd like to get a copy of this little paper on it, it's only four pages, I think, uh, with pretty big type, so it's not long to read, but it's really good, helpful. So I'm going to be reading some from it rather than trying to just talk off the top of my head. But I'll, I'll be stopping and explaining some of this because um, if you're like me, it's new and, and, and it may hit you and you need to think about it. So I want to help you think about it. So uh, prolegomena are philosophical in nature and they drive us to think about our thinking. Now, right there, there are many in the church who would say, we don't need prolegomena then because Christianity is not philosophical. And we don't want the philosophies of men and the philosophies of the world. We just want the Bible. Well, if that's your attitude, hang on. Hang on. The reality is the Bible does give us a philosophy. It, it is a search for knowledge. That's what philosophy is. And, and there are there's biblical philosophy, as you might say, and there's non-biblical philosophy. But part of the anti-intellectualism of the church is that we can no longer communicate with those in the philosophical world because we've shut our minds off to thinking about the things they think about, but thinking about them in light of what the Scripture says about those things. So we just can't connect anymore. But in essence, the prolegomena ask questions like, well, what's the authority of our thinking? And how do we think? And why do we think what we think? Now again, if you're sitting here saying, Fowl, this is gobbledygook, philosophical stuff, nonsense, I'm going to turn the podcast off, I'm never listening to you again. Well, hang in there, my friend. Hang in there. You'll understand that I am not undercutting the authority of the Scripture or the Word of God or any of that stuff but I'm trying to help put things in, in a Christian historical perspective that will help us make sense of what we're up against when we're out in the Mars Hill, in the public square, and in our legislative bodies, or in our neighborhood community meetings when discussions come up, okay? So prolegomena, theology, okay? So there I'm attaching prolegomena, to theology it is what prompts us to ask the same kinds of questions the philosophers ask about well who are we and how do we think and how do we come to know what we know now here's the critical point is theology grounded in something that is not theology or is theology grounded in theology now that may sound like a stupid question 
but it's not in our current climate and the world in which we live and that has affected our apologetics. Now, I'm going to explain how, so hang in here with me. So this professor in essence says, in other words, are the prolegomena actually pre-theological? Is there something that comes before our theology that then structures and shapes and informs our theology? Then he goes on to say this, the most common approach to those kinds of questions about who are we, how do we think, how do we come to know what we know, what's the authority for our thinking, they come out of the Catholic to mystic tradition. Now you may sit here and say, well, I'm not Catholic. I don't want anything to do with that. Well, uh, actually the Protestants today think more like Thomas than the early Protestants. The Thomistic tradition assumes a shared epistemological pattern by which all people engage in rational thought. Rational thought is how we grasp biblical and theological reflections, and all humans operate with a shared system of thought. Now that is true. We can reason together. We all have to reason on the basis of some sense that our sense perceptions are reliable, that when I see the wall in front of me, there really is a wall in front of me, okay? And that if I run into that wall, I will hurt myself, okay? The, the laws of probability would show that every time I've run into that thing in front of me, I've broken my nose, and so the next time I run into it, I'll break my nose, okay? The law of non-contradiction, that the wall can't be in front of me and not be not in front of me, okay? You can't be going up and down at the same time. All of those things are things that we share, okay? But here's what began to happen. The consequence of that kind of approach to theology leads us to see logic and reasoning as foundational to the enterprise of theology. And that kind of foundation, that reasoning and logic and rational thought precedes theology, makes those things pre theological. So you now see why he asked the question, is our theology grounded in something that's not theology, or is theology grounded in theology? The modern church today, the modern evangelical today, and the modern apologetic for Christianity today proceeds on the assumption that the thinking of all men will lead to the same conclusions and precedes theology, that those things determine our theology. So what has begun to happen is human rationality, the concept of human reasoning, now forms the basis for our theology and for theological reflection. In, in this Thomistic way of approaching our theology, our doctrine of God, our, our soteriology, our doctrine of salvation, our, our eschatology of, of end things, well, you see, all of a sudden, it's become rationalistic. And that rationalistic prolegomena is not theological, but simply rests on reason, logic, and philosophy. But that's 
not where the scripture begins the defense of the faith. You see, that's what I was trying to say last week. Scripture assumes that the prolegomena are themselves theological. And the reason they do that, the reason a true apologetic for a Christian begins with theology and ends with theology, because all things come from God, through God, and end up with God, right, is that from start to finish, God is before we were. Now, that's not just a statement of chronology, but it's a statement of the principle of our very human existence. It drives the way we need to think about thinking. The dependence of our human thought is on God. God is at the beginning, and therefore he must be at the beginning of our prolegomena, not reason and logic. That's rationalism. There can be no thoughts regarding God or anything else that are pre-theological because God is eternal, and he's the creator of all things. God is God and we're not. That's what we mean by that. Our theology has to start with theological propositions. Now that may sound circular, but the humanist version of thinking is circular as well. So what was really going on in the Reformation was a question of authority. Who's the authority over what we think and we speak and we believe? Is it the church or is it scripture? And at the time, when Luther posted his thesis, it was believed that the church and its traditions were the ultimate authority. But Luther said, no, Scripture is the ultimate authority. So during this Reformation and Counter-Reformation period, the question of authority came to be center stage. And, and Luther was conscious of the fact that he was dealing with a dueling authority structure. And part of that dueling authority structure is what came out of the Thomistic tradition and its high level of confidence in the reason of fallen men because of the different way the, the Catholic Church looked at the image of God and the nature of sin. It said that man's reason was not impaired really by the fall. He lost only something that was supernatural. So. So men could reason for themselves to truths. The reformers said, no, the effect of sin is ethical and affects our thinking. It's noetic in character. And so we can't assume that the reasonable person can reason himself to God. So consequently, the apologetic of the church did not begin with can I try to prove to you the possibility of the probability of God and then let's look at the probability and the possibility of revelation from God. It didn't start there. It started with the theological presuppositions of revelation and faith. That in other words, without revelation and without faith, we wouldn't know our doctrine. In other words, our apologetic today is an apologetic designed to speak to people who reject revelation and saving faith. Now you may say, well, isn't that necessary because nobody believes in revelation? But here's where the question of faith comes in. I'm gonna to try to be as kind and gentle as I can about 
But I was listening again in preparing for this podcast uh, to um, a sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was the pastor at a church in London, don't remember the name, from oh, the 40s to the late 60s, I guess it was. He was a senior pastor there. He was at that church for longer than that. But he said, today we have essentially believism, not saving faith. And see, what has happened is the church has adopted subconsciously, unwittingly, the view that, that sin is not as comprehensive as the Bible declares it to be. It does not affect the whole of man. And so what the reformers were saying is that faith is itself a gift of God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. And faith is not a matter of logic. Saving faith is not logic. Now, I do not mean to say by that, nor would they have meant to say by that, that saving faith is irrational or unreasonable. But saving faith is a faith that goes beyond what man in his thinking, in his logic, in his rationality would ever come to on his own because of the effect of the fall and the fact that man wants to suppress the truth about God because he doesn't want to have to submit to the revelation of God that speaks to him both from nature and the Word of God. So I don't have time to to go into great depth with this, but there's one verse that I think is key that will be helpful to you. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, and it says, For by grace you have been saved. Now we would all say that grace is the gift of God. It's not something that we've merited, such that we've done something that God says, okay, I'll, I'll now give you grace so you can be saved. Grace is the gift of God. You've been saved by grace through faith. So faith is the instrumentality by which grace is bestowed for our salvation. But the Apostle Paul goes on to write, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Now I'm going to tell you how I was taught this verse. There are a couple of different ways out there. But the question is, and that not of yourself. What is that referring to? Is it referring to grace? Well, that's clearly not of yourself, right? Or is it referring to the word faith? Okay. Well, let's, let's finish the, the third part of that sentence. It is the gift of God. So now I'm going to read it in whole, and then we're going to break it down again. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now, the way I heard it was, was this, that in essence, the gift of God is grace. So it is referring to grace. Well, think about that. You've got three parts of this sentence. If the word it is referring back to grace, the first part of the sentence, not to the word faith, 
in the middle of the sentence. Then you, in essence, have a sentence that says, for by the gift of grace you're saved, it is the gift of God. That's a tautology. In other words, it's saying grace is a gift and it's a gift. Well, who would write a sentence like that? They're just repeating themselves. It adds no content to the first statement that grace is what saves us because grace is a gift. So you're saying grace is a gift, so what's grace? Grace is a gift. I mean, it, it's truly circular there, right? So it must be referring to faith. And a faith that's a gift is not faith that we gin up through mere logic and rationality and reasoning. Because then it wouldn't be a gift at all. It would be the product of our own work. And that's a works-based righteousness. And Paul says in Romans that works are excluded not because, notice what he says in Romans, he doesn't say not because you can't do them all. He says excluded by the law of faith. And so there can be no boasting. Why? Because that faith is not of your own doing itself. If, if faith is just mere logic to the point where we say it's probably more true than not that God exists and it's probably more true than not that Jesus is the Son of God and it's probably more true than not that somehow Jesus saves me from my sin and it's probably more true than not that the Bible is reliable. Well, that's just believism. That's not biblical faith. So consequently, we can see that our whole apologetic no longer starts where it did with revelation and saving faith. Those were the two theological prolegomena that were the foundation for the theology of our doctrine. And now that is not the foundation of our doctrine, but man's reason, autonomous from God and unaffected by the fall. And that's why we do apologetics the way we do now. And we have lost the power of the Word of God because we're too busy actually apologizing for believing in saving faith and revelation and operating on the premises of the world. And our evangel has been conformed to the thinking of the world. But listen, friends, here's what happens. When you take that verse of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 2, 8, and you say that no, faith isn't the gift of God, then you are saying there is something in you about which you can take pride, that you have used your intellect to come to know God, and the other person hasn't. And part of the reason I believe we are in the middle of Pride Month is God says if you want to be prideful in regard to your salvation, I'll show you what pride is really like. I will overwhelm you with pride until you repent of your own pride towards me that you think by your puny, created, and fallen mind you can reason yourself to know God without me giving you the gift of faith through the revelation of the hearing and reading of my word. 
My friends, that's why Protestantism has made no progress because we operate the very same way the world does in our apologetic. And that's not how Paul started his apologetic in the Mars Hill of his world, and that ought to be our model rather than what we're doing right now. Now next week we're going to talk about this issue of, of pessimism in the church today and why it reigns and the heresy that is prevalent throughout evangelicalism. And I hope you will join me next week for that. Remember, share this episode with your friends who maybe grew up with the same understanding of apologetics the same kind of understanding of faith that I grew up with. Because only as we come to see our pride in our faith of reasoning will we begin to have revival and reformation. And I look forward to being with you next week. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.